Well, I'm so glad to be with you tonight, church, uh, and continue on in our series that we call The Thoughts of God. We've been looking at the Bible. We've been looking at that upon which we stand. It's our foundation. What is the Bible? Where did it come from? Uh, can it be trusted? How did it get here? How, how did these 66 books that are in our Bible come to be uh, among these pages? And how do we know that these are the ones that belong here? And how do we know there aren't others that should be here? These are the questions that we've sought to look at in this series. Tonight we're going to talk about uh, reliability. We're going to talk about the canon of Scripture. And it's worth talking about because this book is important. It's certainly a special book. It's a popular book. Uh, I came across a list of the best-selling books, some of the best-selling books of all time. See if some of these sound familiar. Uh, back in the 90s, there was a, a very hot novel called The Bridges of Madison County. This was, this was uh, for the ladies, I think. I really wasn't interested in this book. But 12 million copies that thing sold. That's, I wouldn't mind selling 12 million copies of something. And then there's a book that I hope none of you have read called Fifty Shades of Grey. 15 million copies. Stay away from that one. Ah, oh, here's a good one. Okay, The Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren. All right, that's helped a lot of people. 32 million copies. That's a lot. And then here's one for any of you that might be interested in pasty-faced pretty boy vampires in the Northwest. It's called Twilight. 40 million copies. Go figure. And then here's one, uh, you know, if you're into uh, heretical fiction, it's called The Da Vinci Code. Dan Brown, 80 million copies. That's a shame right there. Cultural phenomenon, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, 120 million copies. Unbelievable. And yet, not as many as this next one, of which I'm a fan, The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien, 150 million copies. Gandalf says to Harry, you shall not Pass, he says, no further, buddy. But neither one of them can outdo Mr. Dickens. You got A Tale of Two Cities, 200 million copies. And most of those are for AP English classes in high school, right? <laughs> and then are you ready for this? Here, here it is, the Bible. Six billion copies. That's a B, folks. Far and away, the most popular book of all time, the bestseller every year, 44 million copies per year are sold. Shakespeare has been translated into over 60 languages, the Bible into over 2,000 languages. Uh, it's, it, the average household has almost seven copies of the Bible. That could be depressing because most of them probably go unread, but it is a popular book. It is a unique book. As we've talked about before, it's written over 1,500 years. It's got 66 individual books within its pages. It's written by uh, 40 different guys in three different languages on three different continents. They come from all different walks of life. They're historian. Uh, they're statesmen. They, they are uh, uh, politicians. They're poets. They're fishermen, for Pete's sake. They're philosophers. They're doctors. They write different kinds of literature within the Bible. You've got history. You've got poetry. You've got prophecy you've got letters and it's not just a unique book it's not just a popular book but as you're going to see tonight in your notes it's reliable the word of God is a reliable book you can't say that about everything can you not everything you read 
is something that you can trust. Not everything you hear is something you can trust. A few years ago, Twitter users in New York City were awakened one early Thursday morning by a citizen app on their phone informing them that police had received a report of a tiger prowling the streets of Harlem. Well, this sent people into a panic. The news media leapt into action. They, they quickly merged on the scene. They wanted to get a, a, a photo of this ferocious beast. They wanted to warn people to stay in their homes. People changed their plans for the day. They remained in their apartments, locked in their houses as they cowered in fear because of this predator on the streets. They could hear the police helicopters uh, circling overhead. And then a short while later, the police revealed that indeed there had been an animal sighting, but it was not a tiger, it was a raccoon. <laughs> because apparently in New York City, the sight of black stripes on a furry body sends people into a panic, right? So you can't trust everything. Did you ever play that game when you were a kid? You ever play the telephone game? You know, you get a group of people together. First person whispers a, a phrase or a word into the ear of, of uh, the next guy. And then they do the same with the next person and so on and so forth. You go around that circle and then the last person says out loud what the phrase is that they think the phrase is and we all have a good laugh because it's nothing like the original phrase. Well, some people might worry that they can't trust the Bible for that same reason. After all, they might say, it's been copied from copies of copies of copies over thousands of years. It's been translated and retranslated. Surely something has been lost in that process. Is the Bible really reliable? Well, what what does reliability even mean? Well, in your notes, in, in relation to the Bible, reliability refers to the historical validity of the Scriptures and the authenticity of their contents. When I read the Bible, I read these words, were they originally as they are presented right now? Is, is this what was originally laid down on paper? I'm going to address that tonight as we talk about not just the reliability, we're going to talk about the process called canonization, getting into all of that. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together discussing something very, very important because I want us, Lord, to come away from here tonight with confidence. I want us to come away feeling equipped as we encounter questions, as we encounter allegations and insinuations that your word is not your word. And I pray your blessing upon our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what evidence is there that the Bible is historically reliable and authentic? And the first thing I want you to see in your notes is that more copies are available of the Bible than of most other historical documents. More copies are available. How many more copies? Why is that important? Well, you have a chart on your notes. We're going to put it on the screen up here. And this will help us understand it. And in this chart, you see a list of some Greek and some Roman historians. And then at the bottom, you've got the New Testament there. And in that next column, you see the original date of writing for each of those ancient documents of antiquity. And then in the next column, you've got the date of the earliest known copy, the earliest known manuscript. And so these, there's a few considerations when you look at a chart like this. What you're looking for uh, to, to recognize the level of a reliability is you want to see the shortest possible gap of time between the date of writing and the earliest 
uh, the date of the earliest known copy, all right? Because really there are no original manuscripts. In case you're wondering, you get into this, uh, this epoch of time, you get into this era of antiquity, and, and there are no original manuscripts. They're just too old. They haven't survived. And so all we have are the earliest known copies, the earliest known manuscripts. They're not original. They're copies, okay? And so you want the shortest period of time between the original date of writing and the earliest copy. Well, let's look at a few of these. You got Herodotus, Thucydides. Who are these guys? These are Greek historians. And, and the gap between their, their dates of writing and the earliest copy is about 1,300 years. Folks, that's a long time. That's a long time. And yet these documents are not questioned. Historians have nothing but high regard for these. They don't scrutinize them at all. And yet, this would be like if you wrote a book, you bury it in the sand, and nobody finds it until the year 3323. That's a long time. 1,300 years. Look at Tacitus there. Tacitus has a gap of about 1,000 years from the date of writing to the earliest copy. You've got Caesar's Gallic War, 950-year gap. you got Livy's History of Rome. That's Titus Livius. Uh, 900 years. We're getting shorter, but that's still, that's still close to a millennium. Now, look at the New Testament. New Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. is written between 40 A.D. and uh, 100 A.D., and we have manuscripts, partial manuscripts date from 130 A.D. Full manuscripts date from 350 A.D. Folks, the shortest gap between date of writing and earliest copy is only 30 years. And the biggest gap is only 310 years. Compare that to the other gaps. Why? It doesn't compare, does it? This is far more reliable in terms of that gap. Now, the other thing that you want to look at is the number of copies. You see right there, you've got eight copies of those first two, uh, and, and you've got a max of 20 copies among the others. Look at the New Testament, 6,000 plus manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek. And then you've got 10,000 in Latin. You've got over 9,000 in other language. It just dwarfs. Uh, the number of copies of these other ancient documents that scholars readily embrace. They don't question them at all. They don't undergo any scrutiny. It's the New Testament. You always hear about that it's not reliable. And yet, by the standards that we apply to all ancient documents, it, there is so much more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. Now, why do we have so many copies? We, can, we could probably leave that chart now on the screen and go back. Why have we got so many copies? Well, one reason in your notes is, is we have consistent circulation of letters among the churches. And if you recall, we've talked about this before, whenever Paul would write an epistle to a church, he would include an instruction as he does in Colossians 4, 30, uh, excuse me, 4, 16. Take a look. He says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so this was a very common instruction that Paul gave. He sent a letter to a church and he says, when you're done, pass this on. And you need to go get this other letter from so-and-so and read that. And that's what they would do. They would read it and they would swap the letters of Paul and they would circulate them. And they would share them. And as you can imagine, nobody's going to give their only existing copy of Paul's letter, they're going to copy it, right? So whether they kept the original or kept the copy, we don't know. But the point is, it's obvious that multiple, multiple copies of Paul's letters were required. 
And so this led uh, to the, that colossal number of copies that we looked at in the Greek manuscripts on that chart. Now, you might have looked at that scripture that we just read, and you might thought to yourself, the letter from Laodicea. Well, I, I, don't, I don't remember that in my New Testament. Maybe you're looking through your table of contents. Now, nah, you know, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, no Laodiceans. Where is that? Well, some say that this, this may be a lost letter of, of Paul. Okay? A lost letter. So what does that mean? If, if we unearth that, is that something we would add to the canon of the New Testament? Well, perhaps, perhaps not. It might be hard to validate something like that, the authenticity of it. There are some letters that have emerged that scholars have said, those are forgeries, that's not of Paul, and so they are discounted. Here's a, here's a more realistic explanation on that. The letter to the Laodiceans is the same as the letter to the Ephesians. This is what uh, Hippolytus and some other church historians have uh, deduced. They say, you know, Paul, he, he kind of recycled some of his letters. We're studying the book of Ephesians on Sunday. If you're not with us on Sunday, you should join us. We're going through that book. Odds are we're reading the exact same thing that the church at Laodicea is reading. Okay? And so they are circulating these copies. Now, how do I know that what I have in the New Testament is originally what they were reading? How do I know? Well, in your notes, this next point speaks to that. And it's this. They had consistent weekly gatherings to read and study. So they're, they're, they're circulating these letters, and what are they doing with these letters? They are gathering, and they're reading them together. How often are they gathering? Well, there was a region called Bithynia. There was a Roman governor over Bithynia named Pliny, and the emperor of Rome, a guy named Trajan, he didn't like the Christians. He said, uh, Governor Pliny, I don't, you, you need to keep an eye on these Christians. I want you to observe them. I want you to watch them. And I'd like you to report back to me and tell me what they're doing. And here's what Pliny reported uh, to, to the emperor. He said that it's their habit on a fixed day to assemble. Well, does that sound like anybody you know? Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? Throughout church history, the church has traditionally gathered on what day? Sunday. Why? Because traditionally that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. Now here we are on a Wednesday night. So we're gathering at least on Sunday. We're gathering on Wednesday. The church I came from in California gathered on Saturday and Sunday. And so there's consistent weekly gathering. That has been the case since the first century. And so we got a couple of millennia of that habit, of that activity. Folks, what better way to ensure that a message stays the same than to gather and read that message week after week, year after year, century after century, for thousands of years. You are ensuring that the message does not change, it does not get distorted, it does not get watered down. We are ensuring and maintaining accuracy. But it's one thing to say that, that the books stay true to what was originally written. It's another thing to say that the contents of those books are historically factual. So what do we do with that? How do we know that the events described in the pages of the Bible are actually historical events? And I submit to you your next point in your notes, which is this, that, that biblical accuracy is frequently confirmed through something called archaeology. 
Archaeology, all right? If that summoned a picture of Indiana Jones, then you're just like me. All right? You're, you're, you're humming the theme song in your head right now. Archaeology, biblical archaeology. Let me tell you something. With every thrust of a shovel, the Bible is validated every single day. Every day discoveries are made. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to Israel. They are constantly excavating over there. They are digging. They are, they are perpetually uncovering things that support uh, the contents of Scripture, uh, that support the, the historical reality of personalities, of places, of events that take place, of King David, uh, of Jesus, of other figures from Scripture. Uh, I walked through in Jerusalem something called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's this very narrow tunnel. I really did feel like Indiana Jones as I did this. The water came up to my chest, almost my chest. I'm very short, so it came up to my... You, you guys would be like down here. Anyway, I'm going through this tunnel, and this was... This was spoken of in the Bible in Second, uh, Second Kings, I think Second Chronicles, talks about the Assyrians were surrounding the city. King Hezekiah, he has this tunnel excavated uh, so that he could divert water from the spring outside the city so they wouldn't be closed. It's all there. And you can go to Jerusalem and you can physically see it, experience it, get wet in the tunnel. And uh, there, there's so many countless things and what you need to know is it's important to remember that no archaeological find has ever disproved any part of Scripture. They only serve to support it, to back it up. And then the next point kind of goes hand in hand with that, which is this, that Scripture has been incredibly well-preserved. It's been well-preserved. Wouldn't you expect that of God? If he's going to deliver his word, <laughs> wouldn't you expect that God will preserve his word? That he's not going to allow it to be distorted? Did you know that the oldest known manuscript of the Old Testament that we had for the longest time was a thousand years old? All right? Now, the Old Testament events were much older. Like, it was written, I mean, you know... More than long, longer than a thousand years ago, but the oldest known manuscript of the Old Testament is called the Masoretic Text. It's a thousand years old. Most of you, if you've got an older translation of Scripture, uh, King James and whatnot, it relies, the Old Testament translation relies on the Masoretic Text. So it's a, it's a manuscript that's a thousand years old. That's the oldest one that we had until 1947. There's a place called Qumran. It's in Israel. It's a desert region, very mountainous. And in 1947, there's a little Bedouin shepherd boy, and he's out there, and I imagine he's about the age of my boy because of what he was doing. He was chucking rocks. He's just out there. He's just chucking rocks. What's he doing? There's these caves way up in the cliffs overlooking the desert floor, and he's trying to get a rock into that cave. Some of you did that when you were growing up. Some of you probably still do that. Anyway... He throws a rock in that cave. He hears the sound of breaking. He hears a shattering. And naturally, he wants to know what that was. And so he, he, he makes his way up to that cave. He goes in the cave. Of course he does. And he discovers several clay pots. And in those clay pots are hundreds and hundreds of leather and papyrus scrolls. 
And he goes and he gets help and they gather him up. They take him into town uh, through a series of events. They change hands. They end up in the hands of these scholars that examine them. And they find that they contain nearly all the books of the Old Testament in scroll form. And these are called, you probably have heard this term, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because this region, Qumran, is near the Dead Sea. And what's amazing is that these scrolls were dated to be 2,000 years old. Well, that's 1,000 years older than the previous oldest manuscript of the, of the Old Testament. 1,000 years older than what we had to base our Old Testament on. But here's the kicker. <laughs> As they examined these scrolls and they examined the Masoretic text, which was 1,000 years newer, you would expect that over a millennium of copy uh, based on recopy and recopy and recopy, you would expect a lot of differences between the two manuscripts. There was practically zero differences between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text. A thousand years difference. Hardly any scribal differences. Oh, there was a few. There were spelling Maybe a few spelling differences, a couple of stylistic things. But the content right down the line, essentially the same. What does that say? It says that God preserves his word, amen? God preserves his word. And that is fully in keeping with who he is. And so we can have confidence in that. And, and you know what we are to do? We're to take his word and we're to hide it. Not in a cave, but in our heart, Amen. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's a light unto my path. So the word of God, my friends, is reliable. And now let's move into this second section here. And I want you to see in your notes that the word of God is complete. It's complete. I want to talk to you now about something called the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture. What is that in your notes? The canon of Scripture refers to the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. And if you open your Bible, if you've got a trustworthy Bible, if you've got, I'm teaching now the ESV, uh, virtually any Bible on the market, you can open up, and those lists, that list that is right there in your table of contents, that's the canon of Scripture, right there. Those books belong in the Bible. Now, who, who decided that? Who determines what is considered canon? Hmm, interesting question. The difficulty in, 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 in thinking about how to determine what might go in the Bible, in the canon of Scripture, is that there's no list in the Bible to refer to. You're not going to open your Bible and see, and thus is the list of books that will be in the Bible. There's nothing like that. I mean, the Bible would be, it, it would have been being written at that time, and so it's not completed most of the way through the Bible. And so how do you know? Well, here's what you need to remember as we talk about this. The books that are Scripture were never declared or determined by human beings to be Scripture. All right? We've talked about the doctrine of revelation. We've talked about the doctrine of inspiration that God gave it supernaturally through the Holy Spirit. And so who is it that determines what is or is not Scripture? Why, that would, that would be God himself. Amen? And so what this means is that the books of the Bible that are in fact canon were determined by God to be such the very moment that he delivered them 
through his spirit. The, the, the idea that, and you're going to hear that, you'll hear people say, well, you know, the Bible, the Bible is man-made, and, uh, you know, in fact, uh, the books that you have were just, they were, they were decided by, by people over, over hundreds of years. And they're talking about this canonization. They're saying, well, they, de- they determined. People chose what would be considered scripture. Here's how much sense that makes. Let's, let, let's just imagine you're, you're a gold prospector. All right? Summon the image. You, you got the overalls. You got a pickaxe. You got a beard. You got the hat, right? You're down a mine shaft for like 30 years. You're mining away, okay? You emerge from that shaft. Ever so often, you got a gold nugget in your hand, and you hold it aloft, and you, you proclaim with your best prospector voice, I declare this to be gold, you know? Well, it's ridiculous. You didn't declare it to be gold. It was always gold, you fool. What would you do? You just discovered it. You discovered it. You found it down there. You identified it. And, and you are just announcing what you found. That's what canonization is. It's not the determination of what is or isn't scripture. It's the recognition of what is or isn't scripture. So with that in mind, let's look at the two testaments. I want to look first at the Old Testament books. How do you know that the 39 books that you have in your Old Testament are the ones that belong there? Simple answer in your notes, Jesus accepted them. Well, that that ought to be good enough for you. It's good enough for me that Jesus accepted them. And listen, there is little to no controversy over the canon of the Old Testament. This is not a thing. People might debate over the New Testament a little bit here and there today. Uh, It really has not been historically a big debate over the Old Testament canon. Certainly by the time Jesus was on the scene, uh, this was pretty much universal agreement about what belonged in the Old Testament canon. And I could tell you that Jesus accepted all traditional 39 books of the Old Testament. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Scott? Because I believe Luke eleven fifty one. Take a look at this. These are the words of Christ. He says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And let me tell you what's going on here. Here's the context. Jesus is talking to these Pharisees. And he is recognizing in these guys the same wicked spirit that was in the Israelites in the Old Testament who murdered the prophets. Uh, To be a prophet was not a fun job because most of the time you died. You got killed. Because you always brought a command. People don't like being under authority. Or you brought some news that it's it's bad news. God's going to judge you. People don't like hearing that. Go figure And so they would kill the prophets, one after the other. King Manasseh took Isaiah, stuffed him in a hollowed out tree stump, a carob tree, and he proceeded to saw that tree in half with the prophets still inside. So it was was a hard life, to say the least, to be a prophet. And Jesus is saying to these guys, from Abel to Zechariah, you guys have the blood of the prophets on your heads. You're responsible. This generation is responsible. Now, what's he mean? We have a little glimpse into how Jesus saw the Old Testament and how much of that he accepted. From Abel to Zechariah, what book does Abel show up in? 
Genesis, where does that come? Where does that fall in the layout of Scripture? That's the first book of the Bible, right? That's, that's number one, right out the gate. Now, Zechariah, who's that guy? He shows up, this particular prophet, he was slain, and that is recorded in the book of 2 Chronicles. Now, where does that fall? What's the last book of your Old Testament? That would be Malachi, all right? Now, you have the modern English layout of the Old Testament. The Jewish arrangement of the Old Testament, Malachi is not the last book. What's the last book? Second Chronicles, okay? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying from Abel to Zechariah, from the first book to the last book. What? That's like you and I saying from Genesis to Revelation. We are implying that we believe those books and everything in between. And so Jesus is affirming the entirety of the Old Testament canon in the original Jewish arrangement of that canon. 39 books, beginning to end. He believes them all. Now some say, well, how do we know that uh, there weren't some books that got uh, kicked out of there? Were there any books left out? I mean, maybe he believed all of the books that we have. Were there any additional books that got left out? And in your notes, we know that no books were left out out of the Old Testament because, and you can jot this down, no other books were ever accepted and none were in the running. There's no reason to believe that there were any books that were kind of up for consideration in the Old Testament. There's no record of that historically. There's no evidence of that. There is no category of books initially accepted and later rejected. We don't know of any books like that. Now, some people bring up a body of work called the Apocrypha. If you, have, if you grew up Catholic, you might know about the Apocrypha. If you have a Catholic Bible, there are some books in there that you don't have in other Bibles, and they fall in between Old and New Testaments called the Apocrypha. What is that? The Apocrypha was written uh, between the 3rd century before Christ and the 1st century before Christ. There's 14 books. There's 15 if you arrange them differently. Uh, you might recognize some of the names of these. 1st, 2nd, 3rd, Maccabees. You got a book called Tobit, uh, Judith. You got Bell and the Dragon. You've got, uh, you got some other books in there. Um, they are uh, valuable from a historical standpoint. They talk about Jewish tradition a lot. Um, they have some value about the, the culture and the, the time period that came after Malachi. So they, they are intertestamental. And so I, I enjoy looking at them from a historical perspective. Are they inspired? And in your notes, the Apocrypha, between the Old and New Testament, they are not accepted as Scripture because, one simple reason, the, the Jews never accepted them. The Jews never accepted. These are the Hebrew scriptures. Okay? The Apocrypha doesn't fit in there. They don't, it's not part of the Old Testament canon because the Jews, the Hebrews, <laughs> they didn't accept them. All right? You won't find them in any arrangement of the Old Testament, of the, of the law and the prophets. There's no Apocrypha in there. You've got a church father by the name of Augustine. He accepted them, which is why the Catholics put it in their Bible. Uh, You've got, uh, well, you do have a mentioned in the New Testament. There's a reference to one of the uh, apocryphal books in the New Testament. And some of them were included among the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Jews never accepted them. 
And uh, in fact, uh, Augustine admitted that they were secondary to the Old Testament. So the next thing that I want to point out here is that the Apocrypha, if you're, if you're thinking about that and you're wondering why aren't they accepted, okay, the Jews don't accept them, what else? Well, uh, in your notes, the Apocrypha doesn't claim to be inspired. It doesn't claim to, in fact, it, it denies it. It denies, see, you got to be inspired to be Scripture. If, if, if a book is not inspired, it doesn't belong in the Bible, all right? Well, they don't even claim to be inspired. In fact, they deny that they're inspired. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read to you from the Apocrypha right now. First Maccabees. For some of you, this is the only time you'll ever hear anything from the Apocrypha. First Maccabees 9.27. It says, There was a great distress in Israel, the likes of which had not been since the days when the, when the prophets ceased to appear among them. Ah, so there, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement here that there is no prophet at the time of writing. This book records the events of the, what's called the Maccabean Revolt. It was written during that time. And it is saying there were no prophets in the land. Well, what do you need in order for God to speak to his people? You need prophets. Okay? No prophet. God's not speaking. If God's not speaking, the writing, not inspired. If the writing's not inspired, it's not scripture. Okay, so I mentioned that they are alluded to in the New Testament, Hebrews 11. That's that famous faith chapter, you know, by faith, dot, 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 did such and such, by faith, etc. cetera. Uh, and then there's a portion of Hebrews 11 where they talk about all these nameless peoples and they reference those who were tortured, uh, and they're referring to people in the Maccabean era. And so some of that would have been recorded in First Maccabees. But just because something is mentioned in the New Testament, does that mean that it's inspired? Hey, the Apostle Paul quoted from uh, pagan Greek poets. Did you know that? Does that mean that Paul considered them to be inspired? No, he's using them as an illustration. He's, all truth is God's truth, and so he's just, he's just making a point. He's not validating uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever, Euripides, uh, or one of those, Euripides, Euphixides. Anyway, so that's the Old Testament, all right? Let's look at the New Testament really quickly. Uh, the early church, in your notes, viewed our New Testament as inspired, and the reason that we say that is because we've already looked at this verse. I'll throw it up here again, First Timothy 5.18. You might recall, Paul says this, he quotes two passages of Scripture in one verse. He says, for the Scripture says... First of all, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy. And then he says, the worker deserves his wages. What's that from? That's the words of Christ found where? In the Gospel of Luke. Old Testament, New Testament. He's putting Luke's writing on par with Moses' writing. And so we understand how the church viewed these, these works. They viewed them as inspired. You hear from Peter in 2 Peter 3, he talks about Paul's writing. In verse 16, he says, He, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. I've known some of those. As they do the other scriptures. As they do the other scriptures. Meaning, Paul's writing is akin to the other 
scriptures. He's putting Paul's writing on par with the Hebrew text. And so we see how the church viewed all of this. We've talked about the circulation. Why were they circulating all these letters of Paul? Because they were considered the word of God. And so this is how the New Testament saw, uh, the, the, the church saw the New Testament writings. Now you might be thinking about some books that you've heard of. You know, some people say, well, the Apocrypha, you know, and they, they ask those questions in relation to the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Anything get left out of that? I mean, I, I, I read Newsweek and, and uh, Time, and from, from time to time you'll see an article pop up about the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Well, what is all that? That's something called the Gnostic Gospels. Gnostic is G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Uh, the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, the Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, of Judas, of Peter. You've got the Acts of John. That's all included in there. And in your notes, none of those belong in the New Testament uh, for a few reasons. We also call that body of work, uh, we call it the pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha. Pseudo. What is that? If something is pseudo, it's false. It's, you are, if you're a pseudo anything, you are not that thing. You're a false representation of that thing. Uh, pseudepigrapha, graphe, writing. False writings. And so you've got these books. They're named for Mary and for Peter and for Judas and for Thomas and for Philip. Guess what? None of those people wrote them. They bear the name, but they were written a century or more after those people lived. Who actually wrote them? They were written by uh, you know, some individual that uh, had an agenda, had a false teaching that they wanted people to jump on board, but they couldn't muster a following together. And so they put out an a, a, a example of writing and they threw a name on there of somebody that is revered from the first century, from the early church. It, they're using, they're co-opting the name of a first century uh, early church figure in order to drum up support and interest in what they're doing. People do this today, don't they? I mean, we got all these franchises, these movies and things being rebooted, recast. You know, they mess with it. They, they, they slip their own little agenda in there. Have you noticed this? Entertainment's a little hard to find these days for families and things like that. Uh, my wife and daughter, a few years ago, they were looking for something to watch. They were on Netflix. They found this thing. My wife grew up. She loved Anne of Green Gables. Okay, Anne of Green Gables. Good. Wholesome, neat story, nice, family fair. They start watching this new reboot of Anne of Green Gables. And it was, it was well done. A little girl that played Anne, very nice, very good actress and all that. Season two, there's this whole lesbian storyline. What in the world? Well, what happened? They took an existing franchise that had a following, and this, this creator slipped their own agenda, their own ideology, their own philosophy into that, and they've got a, they've got a ready-made audience to hear their message. Well, this is exactly what was taking place. And, and the, the thing is, in your notes, they're frauds and forgeries. They're not real. They're written by people with an agenda. And for the people who endorse 
these particular books, they don't have a problem that it's, that it's not the actual person whose name is on the book. They don't have a problem with that because people who like that sort of content, they think the whole Bible was written that way. They don't believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch. They don't believe Isaiah wrote his book and all that. So they, they just endorse these books because they like what these books have to say. And a lot of these books are theologically askew. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the resurrection. They say, some of them say that Jesus was spiritual in form. He was never a physical being. And so he didn't, he didn't die and rise from the dead. He merely reverted to his spiritual form. It's kind of an Arian heresy. And so in your notes, they record unsubstantiated myths and heresies. Uh, particularly about Jesus' life. In fact, one of these Gospels uh, tells some stories about Jesus' childhood, whereby Jesus encounters some children, and one of them uh, knocks him down, and so Jesus, out of spitefulness, curses the kid, and he dies. And he, like, shrivels up. He does this to two children. He kills them. Jesus. It sounds like our Lord. There's an instance in that gospel where Joseph and Mary kind of get on him for that. They're like, Jesus, don't curse the children. And he gets upset with him. He says, I don't belong to you. Don't upset me. You know, you're like, like, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. You know, I mean, weirdly, Jesus in these gospels has more in common with Damien from the omen. You know, it's, it's bizarre. And so... Uh, these are heretical, and so you've got these writings that are kind of popping up in the centuries following uh, Christ, and then you've got these heretics arising, guys named Marcion, who was assembling his own Bible, his own canon, and he's dis discrediting the entirety of the Old Testament. We're not going to deal with that. We're going to unhitch. He was the first guy to say that. And then he's saying, my Bible has uh, 10 of Paul's letters and one gospel. And he took the gospel of Luke and he edited it to, to be what he wanted it to be. And so in, in response to that, the rest of the church is like, well, this is getting out of hand. We, we've got to do something about this. We've got to have a process because what used to be naturally accepted and understood is getting all muddied by these heretics coming out of the woodwork. And so we need to codify scripture okay they're, they're not determining scripture they're formalizing scripture they're officializing scripture this is not a period in which the church is confused about what scripture is they are doing this so as to close the door on people who are trying to add to it you see there was a body of work that was largely accepted and understood to be scripture. And so in your notes, this process, canonization, was the process of recognizing or collecting the books of the New Testament. And there was a series of councils throughout church history. This took place over a couple of centuries because people kept coming up with, with false heretical uh, gospels. And so uh, over a few years, you, you, you had these councils where they would meet, they would convene, and they would ask questions in order to present criteria uh, by which uh, to confirm something as Scripture or disallow something. And I want to give these questions to you as we start to land this plane. Here are the questions used by the councils to identify Scripture. The first one, number one, was the author an apostle or a close associate of one? All right? 
Why is that important? Because Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So the apostles, what are we talking about? We're not talking about run-of-the-mill followers of Jesus. This is not apostles small a. This is apostles capital A. This is the 12. Were they of the 12? Right? The 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, same thing. Or were they a direct associate? Of the 12, all right? So you've got the 12 uh, disciples, apostles. Uh, Revelation speaks of the fact that the future New Jerusalem, when it comes, this is an eschatological event, the, the city, the, uh, the, the New Jerusalem will come down. There will be 12 foundations, and the names of the 12 apostles will be on those foundations. In Revelation 21, it says that. What will those names be? Well, they're listed in Matthew 10. Two to four, we see their names. It says the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, you got Simon, who's called Peter. That's one. Andrew, his brother, two. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Three and four, sons of thunder, right there. Philip, five. Bartholomew, six. Thomas, seven. Matthew, the tax collector. And James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. We're up to 10. And then Simon, the zealot, and then there's Judas Iscariot makes 12. Now, of course, he betrayed Jesus. He was, his name's not going to be on anything. He was replaced by a guy named Matthias. I believe Matthias' name will be on one of those foundations. And so these guys, these 12, verbally taught the early church. Not all of them wrote scripture. That is canon. Uh, but we do have some. We've got direct apostles of the 12 that wrote scripture. Matthew, all right? Peter wrote a couple of epistles. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, all John. And of course, you had Paul, that's God's special apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, he wrote the book we're studying on Sunday. And then a couple of his direct associates. You got Luke, you've got Mark, they wrote Gospels. Uh, you got James and Jude. Uh, they're not of the 12, but they are a brother of a guy named Jesus. Kind of a big deal. I think that gets you in right there. Okay? So, number one, it's got to be an apostle or direct associate of an apostle. Number two, was the book accepted by the body of Christ at large? And this was common. Uh, it was something that the church received. The early church, this is something they read, something they revered, something they had regard for. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So it was the norm that a majority of God's people would accept a writing as sacred. Going back to the Old Testament, Moses' writings, they went immediately into the Ark of the Covenant. Same with Joshua's writings, went in the Ark. Samuel, went in the Ark. Uh, you see Jeremiah reading from prophets that came before him, citing prophets that came before him. You see Daniel reading Jeremiah, all right? Uh, you see, uh, as we've talked about, Paul citing Luke, citing Moses, Peter citing Paul, all of this stuff. And then number three in your notes, this question, is the book doctrinally consistent with the rest of Scripture? In other words, it can't contradict the rest of the Bible. It can't be something that we present as Scripture and it's got this message from left field that is totally at odds 
with everything that came before it. There had to be agreement with earlier revelation. Here's what Galatians 1.8 says. Even if we or an angel from heaven, <laughs> because who can appear as an angel of light? Satan can, right? Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, right? You've got to stay true to the message. No aberrant gospels. Deuteronomy 18, God writes through Moses in verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. A few verses earlier, he says that if the prophet presumes to speak a word of my name I've not commanded, that same prophet shall die. So we can't have just random prophecies flying about that disagree with the rest of God's word. And then another question in your notes, number four, does the book reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? In other words, does this book transform lives? Is there something practical about it? Is there something that changes people? Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is a powerful book, you guys. You believe that? Does it change lives? What if you don't believe in it? What, what, if, what if you're talking to somebody and they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in the Bible. Should you just be like, oh, okay, well, I, I, guess I, won't, I guess I won't ever refer to the Scripture at all. Hey, I understand apologetics sometimes encourages us to use methods of reason and we kind of rationalize and we kind of appeal to people on common ground and all that stuff. Do not abandon the power of God's word, just because you're talking to somebody who claims that they don't believe in it, it has power even if they don't believe in it. Amen? If I'm at home and a thief breaks into my house in the middle of the night and I'm in bed and I reach into my uh, nightstand and pull a pistol out of that and I point it and that thief laughs at me and says, oh, I don't believe in guns. I bet I can make him believe. What do you think? Yeah, this, this book is sharper than any double-edged sword. Even if you don't believe in swords, it can still cut you, amen? Amen. And so there's power, and I want you to see in your notes that, that the canon of Scripture is closed, okay? And we know that the canon of Scripture is closed because, as we've said before, the New Testament is based on the teaching of the apostles. Acts 2.42 the early church, right after its inception, what do they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. It, the foundation of the apostles. It, they were God's appointed authorities. And this is not random apostles. This is the 12. Okay? Jude 3 Brother of Christ, he writes, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Paul referred to the saints in Ephesians. We looked at it this weekend. He's talking about the original figures of the early church, the prominent figures of the church, the 12. Um, they're the foundation. And guess what? They're gone now. Are the 12 still around? Is Paul still around? How about James and Jude? Physically, are they with us? No, no. 
No, they're not. Because I want you to see this. Once the apostles died out, God closed the book. Now, why is that important? It's important because we got people claiming to be apostolic. We got people claiming to be prophetic in a sense of I'm declaring to you a fresh, new revelation of God. He's speaking to me. He's speaking directly to me, and you need to hear it because I'm God's apostle. I'm God's prophet. Anybody ever says that to you or acts that way in front of you, turn and run. That is dangerous. It is heretical. 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Let me make something very clear. This is a warning. It is a warning. In Acts 20, I don't think we have this on the screen, but Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Listen to me. I am the pastor of this church. I am the shepherd of this church. It is my job to inform you that if I see anyone coming into this church trying to add to God's word, trying to take away from God's word, I'm going to run them off. Okay? It will not be tolerated. I take this very, very seriously. One of my favorite movies is The Patriot. All right? There's a scene set during the American Revolution. There's a scene when several colonists, members of a militia, they interrupt a church service. And they're trying to warn the townsfolk about the redcoats. And they're trying to enlist people to stand against them. And a lot of the men in the church get up and they go out in the middle of this service, right? And the last guy to come out is the preacher. And he's got a musket. And somebody says, Reverend? And he turns around and he takes off his powdered wig. I don't have any of those, by the way. (laughs) And he puts on his hat. And he says... A shepherd must tend his flock and at times fight off the wolves. And you have a commitment from me that I will do that because this book is important. It belongs to God. Nobody adds to it. Nobody takes away from it. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, listen, next week we're going to look at some passages that you might have been confronted with before that supposedly have some contradictions, uh, some fallacies in them. We're going to have a little fun, and we're going to look at some of those together. I can't wait to jump into it. Thank you for being here. I'm so encouraged by your hunger for knowledge, for the Word of God, for your respect for the Word of God. God bless you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray a blessing upon every person here. May they grow in the understanding of the revelation that you have given and have a right understanding to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth with great discernment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.